Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit vellinstitute.org, that's V-E-L institute.org, to help us make an impact. Well, I'm excited to introduce our next guest on the Vell Institute podcast. His name's Steve McKinney. He's a Texas A&M graduate who played offensive lineman for the Fighting Texas Aggie football team. In 2015, Steve was voted to the top 100 all-time greatest football players in Aggie history. In 1998, he was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. From 98 to 2008, Steve played pro football for the Colts, Seattle Seahawks, and the Houston Texans. What Steve did on the field, and now does off the field, is truly extraordinary. Steve is an entrepreneur who owns 10 McDonald's franchises. He is fiercely competitive in business, and he uses his success in business to serve and benefit others. Steve contributes time, talent, and treasure to veterans, law enforcement, first responders, elementary students, the Ronald McDonald Foundation, and many other organizations while coaching five youth sports teams at a local YMCA. In 2018, Steve was awarded the Vell Institute Legacy Award that is given to leaders who significantly add to the lives of others through service and action. Steve is one of the most focused individuals I have ever met, and I'm excited for this upcoming podcast with Steve McKinney. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, Steve, man, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And doing a podcast with me. Um, Just so you know, kind of a little bit of background, we reached out to the Texans and we asked, uh, we asked for a community leader. Like, mm-hmm. who's a community leader um, that we can possibly get in here for an interview and then recognize them for some leadership? Mm-hmm. And they said, have you heard of the legend Steve McKinney? That's, <laughs> that's exactly how they said it. Actually, right. that's, that's, that's in the email that I can share with you. Oh, so that's hilarious. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> that's nice. So thanks for being here, man. Uh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So I wanted to start out... Um, with your career at Texas A&M. Okay. You're Maggie. Yes, I am. And uh, you were on the football team. You started three years in a row, right? Right. Mm-hmm. What years? It was uh, 95, 96, and 97. Tell, so, me, tell me a little bit about that experience. Man, that was, all, that was a great experience, honestly. I mean, that, as a kid growing up, I grew up in Centerville, which is about an hour from College Station. Uh, my family was Aggies. My grandfather was an Aggie. So it was kind of ingrained in me from the very beginning. And... I remember when I was in probably about fifth grade, I was in the band in school. And my dream was to be in the Aggie band. It really was. I mean, I played trombone. I I was pretty good. I wasn't great, but I was pretty good. But that was my dream was to be in the Aggie band. I loved watching them every game we'd go to. And we went to a lot of games. And you'd see those uh, tuba players, and they twist every time they hit the line to turn. It was just it was fun to watch. And. I think it was about seventh, seventh or eighth grade, probably, that I remember I was watching A and M play Hawaii on television, 
and Darren Lewis was the running back, and it was something clicked in my brain at that moment. I was like, man, I want to play football at A&M. And I, I grew up loving baseball and basketball. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't even start football yet until seventh grade. But I remember that was the day I was like, man, I'm going to play football at A&M. And from that point forward, it was almost like everything I was doing was to get me to that point, you know. And that, and that, that was always my goal was to get a, get a scholarship to play at A&M. And, you know, we even moved schools my junior year to, to a bigger school and here in Houston at Clear Lake just so I'd have the opportunity to – be developed more and play against better competition and have better exposure just so I could, you know, one day play at A&M. So it sounds like you one day saw the team and just made a decision you were going to play? Yeah. I mean, it was it was one of those things where you just kind of – you you have a dream, you have a goal, and you just kind of put it out there to the universe. You know, you just verbalize it and say, this is what I want to do. You know, I told my parents and told my friends and, you know, people were like, oh, sure, that's a good goal, buddy. Good luck with that, you know, type of thing. But I always believed it. You know, I always, I always believed that eventually I was going to end up there one day. You know, and there was, of course, there was moments and times where I was uh, unsure or didn't feel like, it, you know, things were, were leading to that. But ultimately, that was always my goal, and, and I kept pushing towards it. You know, I kept pushing towards it, went to, went to camps, and just did everything in my power. You know, the, I controlled the things I could control, you know, and that was, that was working out, eating right, lifting weights, playing well, you know, being prepared for games, going to the camps, competing, doing the things that I could control and do to help, you know, reach my goal. Now, before that, before you made that decision to be a, a Texas Aggie, uh, and on the football team, mm-hmm. did, had you made decisions and then made them happen, or was that the first kind of decision that you made in your mind and did, just sort of started moving towards that? Man, that was honestly that was probably my first real goal that I ever set for myself, like long term okay. goal. I had I had other goals. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you want to make the all star team, or you know, you want to be first chair trombone, things like that. You know, I had those kind of goals, but that was really like my first you know, this is what I'm going to do when I get older type goal. And uh, I don't know, it just felt special. You know, it just felt, it felt real to me. And I really believed that I could do it. And I'm, you know, honestly, I think that's almost all the only reason that I ended up where I ended up because I believed so hard, so wholeheartedly that I was going to achieve that goal that I just never let anything get in my way. So you, you, you joined the team, and you had a great career. In 2015, you were voted to the top 100 football players at Texas A&M. Yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty special, honestly, because, you know, as a young kid sitting here saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to play at A&M one day, I mean, never in your really your wildest dreams do you, do you really think that, for one, you're going to get there, and two, you're going to actually become – so so good while you're there that you get respected years and years later so that was that was a that was a nice honor and I really appreciated that you know there's been a a lot of great football players come through Texas A&M over the years and um, you know especially just in the last three years you know if they did that list again I might not make it (laughs) but uh, it was uh, it was an honor you know and I had I had a great career at A&M it was fun I know my freshman year I was I was actually recruited as a defensive end Um, I thought I was gonna be a defensive player so I got there and, you know, played probably about 20, 25 plays my freshman year in defense. And I remember in the, uh, the offseason, Mike Sherman, who was the O-line coach at the time, pulled, called me in his office and said, Steve, I want you to consider moving to offensive line this year. He said, 
if you've moved to offensive line, you can compete for a starting job next year. He said, if you stay on defense, you're probably going to be stuck at a backup for a year, maybe two more. But if you come to the line, you got a chance to start next year. And I said, all right, I'll do it. I want to compete. I want to get on the field. I didn't care what position I was playing. I just wanted to, I wanted to be out there contributing. And so that, uh, that spring I moved over to offensive line and it was, you know, it was like being in a different world when you go from being a defensive lineman to an O-lineman, man, it's, it's coming at you fast. It takes a while to hmm. kind of learn it and learn the trades and figure it out. But, uh, you know, I got through it and ended up, uh, didn't end up starting to begin the season. You know, I was competing against a fifth-year senior, James Brooks, who was a good player. And he got hurt in, like, the second game. Well, I think we were playing Tulsa or LSU. I can't recall. But uh, he got hurt. He, tw- he uh, sprained his ankle. And I came in off the bench. And I never never left the field after that. Mm-hmm. You know, I got my opportunity, and I was ready. And uh, I certainly wasn't perfect. But uh, I, was, I was playing with everything I had. I know that, and and ended up starting the rest of that season, and then the next next two seasons as well. So at at at, at a certain point while you were on the team, did you make a decision you were going to the NFL, similar to the one that you decided to to make for being an Aggie football player? Yeah, I mean, you know, to to make it that far, you definitely have to have those goals set. And when I got to A and M, that certainly was not really my goal, honestly, because I was thinking more of just make you know making the team contributing getting getting on the field starting once I got in that starting job then it was just you know keep that starting job and then after probably my junior year maybe during my junior year when I knew the job was mine I wasn't going to lose it to anybody at that point I was all you know second team all conference my junior year first team all conference my senior year sometime around my junior year I I made that that decision in my head that I wanted to go play in the NFL and so at that point, everything I was doing moving forward was to make that goal happen. Um, and that means playing every play like it's a job interview, you know, because really every play is a job interview. Uh, every scout, every team is going to look at every play. If they're, if they're interested enough to draft you, they're going to look at every play you play. They're not just going to look at your highlights. So I, I played with, every, with that in mind when I'm out there. You know, even if it's a pass and the ball's going away from me or whatever, I knew I had I knew I had to do my best on every single play and give it everything you had. So that was that was kind of my mentality, and and certainly with the training and off season work and you know all that's just as important as what you do on the field um, is preparing yourself for for the next season or for uh, a combine or anything like that. So I mean, I worked I worked my tail off, man. I did I did everything in my power and. Uh, Controlled the things I could control, mm-hmm. and it worked out. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, 98, you were drafted to the Colts. I was, yeah. And you played for the Dolphins, the Seahawks, and the Texans. Right? Well, I wouldn't say I actually played for the Dolphins, okay? Because okay? <laughs> I was actually that was after my 10th year with the Texans. Okay. And I tore my ACL in my 10th year. Ah. Yeah, that, that was not fun. But I thought I might be done at that point, but I decided to, te- you know, make another run at it. Um, so I got I got back in about as good a shape as I could be in at the time, and you know Miami signed me to to come in there and compete for the starting job at center. I just wasn't quite healthy. I wasn't ready mentally or physically with my knee, and uh, you know that just didn't work out. So I ended up getting cut there in training camp, which was probably best for both of us, and uh, really thought I was done after that too. 
you know, I think I set out about eight weeks or so and was pretty much through with football, you know, looking on to the next chapter. And I remember I was on my way to the deer lease and I got a call from my agent and he said, Seattle wants to bring you in. I said, well, you know, I'm on my way hunting. <laughs> do they, are they going to sign me or they just want me to come up there and do a physical? I said, cause if they just, if they're not going to sign me, I'm not coming. Um, and he got off, he, he said, well, let me find out. So he made a call, called me back. He said, no, they're going to sign you. I said, all right, well, if they're going to sign me, I'll, I'll go. So I turned around, which was hard because I mean, I had my mind set on, you know, deer hunting that day. And so I had to turn around and, you know, drive back home. My wife's like, why are you, where are you, why are you here? Where'd you, I thought you were going hunting. I said, well, Seattle wants to sign me now. So I'm flying to Seattle tonight. So, you know, that's just life in the NFL though. You know, when you're, when you're in that life, I mean, you just, you never know. But uh, that's why I didn't play at Miami. I don't really claim them as part of my uh, history. <laughs> but, you know, going back to, you know, starting my career in the NFL, you know, when you're leading up to the draft, you hear all these different pundits and agents telling you stuff and coaches telling you things. You don't know where you're going. It's the hardest time of a, of a player's life is that time between the last game of his senior year in college and the draft, the day of the draft. Because you, that's like the first time in probably 20 or, you know, 15 years that you're without a team. You're just on your own. It's just you and the weight room mm. and your agent. That's it. You know, you don't have a schedule. Nobody's telling you what time you have to be at a team meeting. So it's a very, it's a very weird feeling. You know, you just have to really push yourself. But it's, you feel almost kind of lost because you just want to be a part of a team. You know, you're just like, oh, man, I just want to know where I'm going. What team am I going to be on? I'm just ready to go work, you know, find my position, that kind of thing. So I'm being told all different things, you know, third round, you know, maybe second round. So I go take a few visits. You know, a couple teams want to fly me in and visit. And I visited with uh, St. Louis. And Dick Vermeil was the head coach at the time. Dick Vermeil's a great guy, you know, real nice, friendly guy. So I'm sitting up in his office, and, you know, I'm just happy to be there. I'm just excited that, you know, the teams even want to talk to me. I don't know where I'm getting drafted. And he's like, Steve, we, uh, you know, we really like you. We like your, we like your technique. We like the way you play. You know, we need, it. We need some help on the inside at guard. Um, you know, we really want to take you in this second round. And they had, like, the fifth pick in the second round. And before then, I'd been told, you know, probably third round, mid-third, early third at best. And so he told me early second. I'm like, oh, man, this is, you know, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, this is great. You know, I got it made, <laughs> you know. And so I end up leaving there, and day of the draft comes, and I know there's three or four teams that are interested in me. You know, I think uh, St. Louis for sure, Tampa Bay, uh, a couple other teams. But, you know, so I'm watching the draft go by, and back then they did the first round on, on one day. Okay. On Saturday, they did first through third. And then on the Sunday, they would do fourth through seventh. So now they do it like first on one day, second on the next day. You know. So it's kind of like that. But back then, it was just first through third on that first day of Saturday. So I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the first round goes by, you know, and I'm, I wouldn't expect to get drafted in the first round. So then the second round comes by, and here comes St. Louis pick. You know, and I'm getting kind of nervous. I'm, I'm excited, but I'm nervous. And then all of a sudden, they pick, and it – you know, they draft some running back or defensive end or something. I'm going, ah, okay. All right, well, Tampa Bay's coming up here in a minute, you know. So they pick, and they didn't call my name. So I'm trying not to get discouraged. You know, I didn't really expect to go second round anyway. So here comes third round. And then those same four teams that, that 
all said they loved me and were going to pick me. One by one, they all pick. Never heard my name called. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm getting discouraged. It's getting late in the third round. I'm like, man, this, you know, somebody's got to pick me. I'm supposed to be in the you know, second, third round. You know, why, am I, why am I not being drafted yet? So first, second, third round comes and goes. There I am sitting. Still haven't been drafted yet. You know, so in my mind, I'm starting to question things. And, you know, did, did things just happen? Is, is my, did my agent mess me up somehow? You know, why, am I, why did I not get drafted? You know, I'm frustrated and um, trying to keep my wits about me. But still, you're just so anxious to know where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. Well, this stuff happens all the time in the draft. You know, guys get drafted earlier than they thought and later than they thought. You know, that's just part of the NFL. The way the way the pieces fall during the draft changes how people draft on their on their draft board. So, anyways, I wait all night, you know, and I'm just probably didn't sleep a, a minute. And then I wake up the next day. It's Sunday. I think the draft started about ten o'clock. You know, I'm just kind of getting settled in. Don't really know what to expect. I don't even think any teams called me overnight. You know, so usually you would expect if. You're going to get drafted early. A team might call you, gauge your interest, see what you're thinking, you know, where's your head at and all this. Nothing. So I'm just sitting there. It's about it's about 9.55. And then all of a sudden, about two or three minutes later, I get a phone call. And it's the Indianapolis Colts that I had not talked to, didn't even meet with at the Combine, wow. didn't know anything about. They'd never, never even mentioned any interest in me. And uh, I think uh, Bill Polian, who was the uh, GM at the time, he said, Steve, this is, Jim, uh, this is Bill Polian for the Indianapolis Colts. I was like, oh, hey, how are you? He said, we're going to draft you with the first pick in the fourth round. We're going to trade up to get you. Our offensive line coach loves you, um, so we're going to move up and take you with that first pick. Is that okay? I was like, yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> Let's get this over with, man. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to play ball. I'm ready to have a team. And so then uh, I told my wife at the time, we had, uh, actually, I think she was my fiance. We hadn't gotten married yet. We were we were planning to get married a couple of months later. So I told her, I said, well, I'm getting drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. And her first her first response was, is it cold there? And I said, yeah, it's very cold in Indianapolis. But good good thing is they have a dome, so we're going to be all right. You know, we're both Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, so but it was uh, it was it was exciting, you know, and I was I was just so relieved, so elated to just be drafted and just be back on a team and to fulfill a dream of playing in the NFL. You know, it's just, you see these kids on TV and you watch them go through the draft process and you'll see a quarterback that maybe was projected early in the first round, drop all the way late back into the first and some even fall into the second round, you know, and you think in your mind, you're sitting there on the couch thinking, wow, man, they must be really disappointed. And, but as soon as you get your name called, all that disappointment goes away completely. It really does. I mean, it just disappears. And you're just excited to be in the NFL. And, you know, the next chapter of your life just begins at that moment. Hmm. So you, you spent 11 years in the NFL. I did. 11 yeah. years, yeah. Many people don't make it 11 years. No, that's a, that's a, that's a long career. I mean, the NFL, probably the average career is 3.4 or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So. And you were taking a beating. Oh yeah, Ain't taking a, a beating. taking a beating, and probably taking more than I gave, honestly. But it was uh, it was fun, you know. And you talk about setting goals. I mean, you, I got to the NFL, I got to Indianapolis, and Howard Mudd was my offensive line coach, who I you know stay in touch with to this day, um, have all the respect in the world for. You know, if I hadn't been drafted to Indianapolis, I don't know where my career had gone, honestly. 
Because sometimes God puts you in the right place at the right time, and you, you, you question that because you don't really know that that's where you're supposed to be. And that's kind of what happened with me because I thought I was supposed to be in St. Louis or Tampa Bay, but I wasn't. You know, I was supposed to be in Indianapolis with an offensive line coach that really liked me, wanted, wanted me to prosper and be successful and help me. You know, so that was, that was really why I, I played that long as I did because I got put in the right situation for me. So uh, of the teams you played for, can you give us a favorite and why? Uh, it had to be the Texans, okay. you know, and I, and it's only because I'm from Houston. And it was so much fun playing in front of my home home city with my friends and family, being able to come to games and, you know, beating Dallas that opening night in 2002 um, was just amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had some I had great memories and great times in Indianapolis and we won, we won some big games and had a lot of fun. And but nothing really compares to playing in front of your home team mm-hmm. or home city. It just really doesn't. It's uh it's hard to explain, but, you know, it just felt so good representing my city and, you know, being a part of that, you know, original team with Houston. So I know this is a tough question probably, but uh, when you compare uh, the NFL to college ball, mm-hmm. what stands out as, like, your, one of your favorite pastimes in the NFL or was it at, at Texas A&M? Um, you know, that's a, that's a tough question because I loved both of it. It's just very different. Okay. I mean, I love college football. I, I enjoy watching college football more than I do NFL football because there's there's a passion that goes with rooting for your university, you know, especially when you go to school there. Um, the, there's nothing really to compare to that. I mean, the Houston Texans are a business, right? They They signed me. They paid me for six years, but then they cut me, you know, when you go to a college, you know, you don't get cut. Texas A&M can't fire me. They can't cut me. So I'll always be an Aggie. I can't always be a Texan. I can root for them. I can be an ambassador, but I'm not a Texan anymore. And so it's a little bit different. Um, and, and truthfully, college is, because it's so new, man, you go from high school to college, I mean, that's a big jump. When you go from playing in front of, you know, four or five, 600 people to playing in front of 70,000, nowadays 100,000, I mean, that's a big jump, right? When you go from college to the pros, you're almost taking a step down. You know, you go from playing in front of seventy or 100,000, now you're playing in front of fifty or 60,000 sometimes. Uh, so, I mean, that's, it's just very different. And, and you realize once you've been in the NFL for a few years that it really is a business. You know, you're doing, it's a job. You're not out there to have fun, and you're not out there to represent your city or your school. You're there to perform and get paid for it. And if you don't perform, you will get cut. And that's just, that's the cold black and white truth of the NFL. And so as a player, you, you kind of understand that, you know, that's what you've signed up for. You're still living a dream. It's still fun. It's still football. It's still a kid's game. You're getting paid to do, but it's a job and you know, you can lose that job if you don't do your do well. So it's different. Uh, let me ask you, what is, what's special about a and I mean, if there is something. Oh, there's plenty of stuff that's special. I mean, what makes A&M special is really the people. You know, the people that that are there, the love they have for the university, the passion that they have, not just for the sports, but just for the university itself. You know, Aggies, people, people make fun of us because they think we're a cult, you know, because we're so obsessed with our university, but that's okay. That's what makes us special, you know, is that we do care 
uh, we do take pride in our university and we take pride in our sports teams, even when they're not doing well, you know, we're, we're going to support them. And you can't say that about everybody. And you certainly can't say that about professional sports, because if the professional sports teams are doing very poor, those, the stands are empty. Nobody goes to see it. Um, A&M could, you know, even back, you know, 10 years ago when they were having four and eight seasons, you could still have 70, 80,000 people in the stands. So, you know, A&M is just a, just a place that I've always loved. You know, of course, it was ingrained in me as a child. <laughs> so, um, Thoroughly indoctrinated? Thoroughly indoctrinated. You know, so, I mean, that's, uh, it's hard to uh, compare myself to just like an average, average person that uh, didn't grow up that way. But uh, I've always loved A&M since I was a kid. I love it, you know, as much now as I did then. Tell me about a coach or a player either from your, your college career as a football player or your NFL player, uh, career, mm-hmm. who stood out and why? Well, I would, I would have to go with Peyton Manning. Uh, when I was in Indianapolis, you know, and he got drafted, he was in that same draft class. We were actually both first picks. He was the first pick in the first round. I was the first pick in the fourth round. <laughs> you would be surprised how much more money you make when you're the first pick in the first round <laughs> than the fourth round. <laughs> but uh, he, he always, I always respected Peyton because, first of all, he's a good guy, you know, nice guy, genuine guy. But he was such a hard worker, you know, and as a quarterback, and he's, he's had all this success, and he's the first pick, and he's, you know, got this $50 million contract. But yet he was the first one in and last one out type of guy. You know, he would put in the time, whether it's in the film room, on the practice field. He was putting in more effort than anybody. He would go up there on our Tuesdays, which is really our only day off in the NFL, and watch film and, and work on the game plan with the coaches for the following week. So I respected that. You know, I played with plenty of other quarterbacks after him, um, and none of them had his work ethic. And also, I don't think it's a coincidence that none of them had his success either. So he was, he was one that I definitely, uh, definitely appreciated and respected and, and missed once I wasn't playing with him. Uh, not just how good of a quarterback he was and just how hard of a worker uh, and, and leader. He was a great leader. You know, he was, he was a guy that would encourage and push and expect and demand, you know, that you putting in that same type of effort that he was. Can you give me an example? Well, I can tell you that uh, in the four years that I played up there, I don't think there was any. I don't think there was one time that I ever beat him to the facility at practice. So he led by example. He led by example. You know, he was he was the guy, and it wasn't fake. You know, it wasn't. It was never a hey, look at me. You know, be like me type of deal. It was like this is what I'm going to do because this is what I need to do to be the best. Uh, I expect you to do it too, because we're trying to win championships here. We're not just trying to get paid. And so that was, that was kind of the mentality. And, uh, you know, it built. You know, when we first got there, the season before, they were 3-13. Thir- and 13. Our rookie year, we were 3-13. and 13. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a very young team, rookie quarterback, r- rookie lineman. I was starting as a rookie. Uh, but the next year, we were 13-3. and three. Wow. Yeah. We, we had one of the biggest turnarounds in NFL history. From three and thirteen to thirteen and three, you don't see that a lot. No kidding. But man, it was uh, it was a fun year. You you just felt like you couldn't lose. We went out there every week just with you know tons of confidence that we were going to win, and 
you know, we practiced so hard that year. I'll never forget. You know, we just every day we were out there just grinding it, working as hard as we could, pushing ourselves, pushing each other. Um, I don't think I'd, I don't think I ever after that or before it had ever worked or seen a team work that hard in practice. You know, and that that was kind of what showed me what it really takes to be, you know, a championship level team. We didn't end up winning a championship that year, um, but we certainly should have and probably could have if things would have fallen right for us. But uh, that's what it takes. You know, that's the type of commitment and effort that's required to win championships. And I, I guarantee you, you see that same same type of commitment at teams like New England, uh, Philadelphia. I guarantee you, if you ask them, they get after it in practice every day. They don't take days off. There's no way. How about a coach? I got to ask you about a coach. And, and you know, if you don't, if you don't have an example. That's oh well, I mean, you know, Howard Mudd was was always my favorite coach. He was our offensive line coach there in Indianapolis. Um, played in the NFL himself. You know, he's an older guy, kind of groggy and just kind of crazy looking. Really, you know, just crazy hair and we can goatee and he limps around everywhere and. You know, has just a real old, you know, if you looked at him, he has the voice of what he what he looks like. You know, it's just like, hey, arr, arr. but he was uh, he was just one of those guys that really just spoke to me. You know, the words when he would talk to me, like I would just really understand it and just like get it. You know, he was a great communicator. He just knew how to communicate in a way that you could really understand what he was wanting to get out of you. I mean, I'm talking about technique and and uh, body positioning and things like that. And he was a little bit unconventional in some of the stuff he did. You know, some of the some of the blocking schemes and uh, techniques that we use are things that I'd never seen or heard of, um, but it worked. You know, it was effective, and so uh, I just loved playing for him. And, and uh, he's he's a good guy. I missed him after after I left Indianapolis. You know, um, he was definitely uh, definitely one of the coaches that I've missed. And you know what made him great too is that he definitely formed a sense of brotherhood within the O-line room. You know, he was the kind of coach that would come out to eat with you on Thursday night as a group or, or invite you over to his house for dinner, um, you know, arrange. I remember one time he arranged for us to go see an opera, you know, I guess, he, or, you know, wherever classical, where they're like playing violins and stuff, orchestra. You know, he was all into that kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and so we're – we're just this big, you know, group of offensive linemen, a bunch of 300-pound guys, you know. And he's he's arranged for us to go to this orchestra in Indianapolis. And I've never been to an orchestra. You know, I hadn't been to one since then. But he, he had us sitting. Okay, so here's the orchestra right out in front, you know, and the audience is out in front of them. Well, behind the orchestra, there's like this row up on behind them, like above them. And so that's where he's got us sitting. I, <laughs> <laughs> and it had to be hilarious to the people sitting out in the audience because we're like the only ones sitting behind the orchestra up high enough where they could see us. And we're, you know, a bunch of 300-pound offensive linemen, and we're all sitting there in, like, suits and stuff, and our necks are probably exploding buttons out into the audience. And, you know, we're just all kind of looking at each other like, man, what are we doing here? <laughs> what is this? Um, but it was it was just stuff like that that just brought you closer together as a group, you know, it was just, it was a fun time. Those, those four years I spent up there, enjoyed that. So I have to ask, was there a lesson behind that? The, behind orchestra? the orchestra? experience, Or was it just to kind of build the, 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 the brotherhood and the I think everything, yeah, everything he did and we did, you know, as, as a unit was just to try to build family, build that bond, you know. 
um, I think he just wanted to expose us to something that he was passionate about that he enjoyed. You know, so we we go along with this with this weird stuff every once in a while. <laughs> so let, let's transition to business stuff. You got okay. you got out of the you got you got out of the NFL and you um, you became a businessman. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, when I was in Indianapolis, I started kind of researching businesses because that's the, like one of the first things you learn when you're in the NFL is that it doesn't last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, they basically beat that into your head because they want you to be prepared for life after football because it's coming. And for some, it comes sooner than others. And you need to be prepared because it can be a tough transition if you're not. So I was researching different franchises and, you know, looking into things and because um, that's kind of what I wanted to do. You know, I, I wanted to be a business owner and, and uh, start my own business and, you know, felt felt franchising was the right way to go. So didn't want to do anything while I was living in Indianapolis, but I just kind of started the process. You know, I was reading franchising disclosure documents and just kind of getting a feel for what franchises I thought would be the most successful long term. Um, you know, I looked into McDonald's, but, you know, quickly realized that McDonald's, they don't they don't accept operators that are not, you know, engaged in the day to day business. You know, you couldn't be just an investor type uh, owner. And so I knew playing football, that wasn't possible. So I kind of pushed them off to the side looked at other other ones that, you know, I could be just an investor and, you know, hire a team to run them type deal. So when I got to, to Houston, I signed a five-year contract with them. And so I finally was kind of settled back home. You know, that's another good reason why I wanted to come to Houston because I wanted to kind of get that next chapter, kind of get the ball rolling a little bit for, for when it did happen. So I, I looked into a bunch of different businesses and franchises and um, ended up investing in Freebirds Burrito which was a popular burrito chain that started in College Station. You know, we'll be in an Aggie. I ate there quite a bit. I was exposed to the Super Monster probably within my first week of being there. You know, so once I, once I found out about that, it was, it was all over. You know, I was, I was hooked on Freebirds. So I contacted the people that own Freebirds, and I said, look, I want to I put a franchise here in Houston. Um, and they said, well, we don't franchise. You know, we're privately owned, and... Uh, we're looking to expand, but we're not. We don't. We're not taking on any franchise partners. Uh, but would you be interested in being an investor? I said yes. So we ended up. Uh, we ended up investing in Free Birds. Um, owned about ten percent of it, and we grew it from. I think it was like three locations up to about eighteen, and then we ended up uh, selling it at that point, which I didn't want to sell, but they owned, the guy that had the majority ownership wanted to sell, so I ended up. Ended up signing off on that. So after we sold out of that, you know, now I'm kind of looking, what's my next thing? What am I going to do next? So I, this is going to sound crazy, but there was a snow cone stand down the road from my house. Man, and I got hooked on these dang snow cones, and I was eating one like every day. While in the, while in the NFL? While in the NFL. You know, and I'm probably, I probably put on 10 pounds eating snow cones one year. And so I'm going to this snowball place, and I'm eating these snow cones every day, and I'm thinking like, man, these are Oh, these are good. You know, I, mean, I should start. I should open one of these. And so I started looking in the snow cone stands, and I ended up buying like a couple of uh, snow cone stands, three actually, um, just because I love snow cones and I wanted to, you know, learn about business and learn about being an owner and uh, permitting and what things like names? that. What were the names? McKinney's Hawaiian Shaved Ice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. It was. Uh, 
I mean, it was a good learning experience. You know, I got, got on the internet. Probably, I don't think I got on eBay and found this this guy that did these customized snow cone trailers and bought it. It was real nice. You know, put up put the graphics all on it and got it going. And you know, we were selling some good snow cones out there in Clear Lake for a while. I think I did it for about two years. And had one of my high school buddies, Abel was his name, running them for me. Um, well, she did a terrible job. You know, I should have fired him immediately. <laughs> That's why they tell you, don't ever hire your friends or family, you know. But uh, it, was a, it was a good learning experience. I really did learn a lot from it and learned, learned a little bit about the food, you know, business. And, and, but mostly I learned about customer service. And I learned about providing a good, you know, product and things like that. And I learned that I liked doing it. I learned that I enjoyed doing that and being part of it. Um, selling a product to a customer and them appreciating that and then them paying me for it. So that's kind of what uh, kind of what kind of spurred me further into the uh, food food business. But before I got to the food business, I kind of went backwards and, and went into a different line uh, called sports performance training with a franchise called Velocity Sports Performance. So I was reading you know some business journal magazine one day. And I come across this advertisement, this page for Velocity Sports Performance. And I'm looking at this. I'm like, holy cow, this is amazing. Like, every kid in America should be doing this. You know, it's, it's got these pictures of these indoor facilities with artificial turf and basketball court and track and weight, weights. And, you know, all they do is specialize on working with young athletes to make them better athletes. They, they improve speed, agility, quickness, strength. And I'm just, I fell in love. And I was thinking with my heart and not my head, because this was a brand new franchise, right? So I flew out to uh, Marietta, Georgia, to meet with the guys that owned Velocity Sports Performance. And I went into their first facility, and I had never never met with anybody about franchising. This was my first kind of experience with a franchise. And I was very naive, but I'm looking at all this, and I'm thinking, like, how could this not work? You know, here I am. I'm a professional athlete. If I open one of these up in Houston, man, people are going to flood in. You know, we're going to make a killing. It's just going to be great. So I signed on. I'm like, where do I sign? I'm ready. Let's go open one in Houston. So I signed on to do, like, two or three of them. And, you know, we opened our first one up in Friendswood. And, uh, you know, people were coming in. A lot of kids were signing up and training. And, you know, I'm looking at my P&Ls at the end of the month. I'm like, where, wait, where's all the money? You know, they're like, well, your rents, look how high your rent is and your overhead and your labor. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, man, how do you make any money in this business? You know, you got to, I'd have to have 2000 kids over here training. So I quickly realized that as great of a pr- uh, product as it was, because it worked, it really helped kids get faster. It was just not a good business model. You know, the overhead was too much. Uh, the labors cost too much. You had to have too many kids to sign up for it, for it to really make profit. And so that just didn't work. It just didn't work. So I ended up, uh, you know, getting out of that and selling them off and kind of moving into a little bit of uh, commercial real estate development and stuff like that. So I was basically like selling, buying the buildings they were in and selling them off to people, somebody else to run them, you know, let somebody else take a shot at running them. Because really it was one of those that you kind of had to be there. You really need to be the man to make them work and be profitable. You kind of had to run them yourself train kids yourself. I just couldn't do that. I was still playing football at the time. So I ended up uh, selling those, holding on to the real estate and just being a landlord. You know, I was just owning some commercial buildings and renting out spaces to tenants and things like that. And 
I think I did a little uh, subdivision development out in Friendswood. Um, but I learned that I didn't enjoy that. You know, I wasn't, it just didn't excite me. There was no passion behind it. You know, just looking at numbers and talking to tenants and fighting with tenants over paying rent. You know, it's just like, nah, I don't want to do this. This is not what I'm doing the rest of my life, you know. So soon as I, soon as I was done with football, got back from Seattle my last year, you know, it was just after Christmas. I came home, told my wife, like, look, I'm done, you know. I'm 34 years old. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to. I don't want to train all off season to stay in shape so I can go play again. I was like, I'm ready to just quit and retire and do something else. And that's going to be McDonald's. I said, I'm going to sign. I'm going to. I'm going to apply to get into McDonald's franchising. I've always wanted to do it. I've always loved McDonald's. The only reason I hadn't applied before because I was still playing. I said, now I'm done. I'm going to try to get into their owner-operator program. So I filled out my application. They sent me a letter saying, oh, we're interested. You know, we'd like to review your financials, blah, blah, blah. So I sent them all my financials thinking like, oh, this is going to be good. You know, slam dunk. You know, I should hopefully be starting here in a couple of weeks or whatever. And I get this letter back. And they're like, unfortunately, at this time, we're, we're not interested. We get 10,000 applications a year and can only accept X number and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? And I was like, no, this, this can't be right, you know. I'm Steve McKinney, man. I played in the NFL, you know. I've got people in Houston love me. I got a lot of money. Come on. So what I found out is that, you know, McDonald's didn't need me. They got plenty of applicants. They got plenty of people that know how to run restaurants and have a little money in their pocket. Um, so I, that was very humbling. I was like, wow, okay. I was like, well, let's let's look at plan B then, I guess. And I so I started looking at other franchises and I looked at Arby's and Golden Corral and um Fuddruckers, Whataburger. Waterburger wasn't franchising. So then I'm I'm like, man, I really I gotta get back in McDonald's. You know, I really want to do McDonald's. Yeah, it was kinda kinda went back to, you know, when you set that goal, like don't give up on it. You know, because I'd almost given up. I kinda accept saw that letter and kinda accepted it and was like, well, I guess, you know, I guess this isn't meant to be. Um, but then, you know, I kept coming back to it in my head, I'm like, man, there's gotta be a way. There's gotta be a way to get into McDonald's. So I'm at some function with my parents and I come across this guy, his name's Ron Blashley and I'm talking to him and he asked me, he's like, man, so what are you going to do after football? And I said, well, I said, well, I wanted to get into McDonald's, but they rejected me. So now I don't know, you know, I'm looking at other franchises. He's like, well, I may, I may be able to help you. I said, how so? I was like, well, I used to be a McDonald's owner operator for like 15 years. I just sold my stores, you know, a couple years ago and retired. I'm like, Oh, really? Oh, fancy meeting you here, Ron. So uh, he ended up putting a phone call in for me. He's like, I'll get you an interview. So he put a phone call in for me with uh, uh, Larry Zimmerman, who was the vice president here at the Houston Regional Office for McDonald's. I mean, literally, like the next day, I get a phone call, and they're like, yeah, we'd like you to come in and uh, and visit with us. So I went in, met with them, and uh, you know, told them my story, and basically – you know, had to sell them on myself. I had to convince them that I'm not just a, I'm not just some ex-pro football player with a lot of money that just wants to buy a franchise and let my brother-in-law run it or my cousin, because I think that's what they were afraid of. You know, they're not looking for that. I, and I told them, I said, no. I said, I'm 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 ready to be in McDonald's. I'm gonna sell everything I have. I'm getting out of everything I'm doing. I'm just gonna do McDonald's. That's all I'm gonna do. I'm gonna focus on just one thing. I'm gonna do it really well. And and I convinced them, and they said, okay, I said, we'll, we'll put you in the program then. And so I started, you know, a couple months later, 
basically you start from the bottom up. You have to go through about a year and a half, two years of training. Because um, I didn't know anything about running a restaurant, you know. That was the thing that scared me about some of these other franchises I was looking at. Arby's and Golden Corral especially. I mean, that's a huge operation. And they were going to train me for like four or five weeks. I mean, it takes you a lot longer than four or five weeks to learn how to run a Golden Corral. You've got to have some previous restaurant experience. Well, I had none. Well, luckily, McDonald's understands that and knows that most a lot of their franchisees that don't grow up in McDonald's don't have that experience. And they want to make sure you know what you're doing. So, I mean, I started without pay, working as a crew person, 40 hours a week. Wow. Yeah. No money, buddy. No money. And so I'm working 40 hours a week at least, uh, all different shifts, you know, overnights, opening, closing, mid-shifts, weekends. You know, this is me a year after playing for the Texans. So and, tell, tell me about that. Tell me more about that. Was there a point in time where you are like, what the heck am I doing for Oh, yeah. Cooking fries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you first get started into it, it's pretty cool. You know, it's fun. It's new. It's interesting. You're learning how to do this and learning that. But after you've been doing that for a couple months, it's like, okay, I got it. Now what? You know, I'm ready to move, take the next step. And there, McDonald's is not like that. It's like, okay, well, just do it for a few more months, you know, just to make sure you're really good at it. And you're like, oh, are you serious? Like, I'm ready to, I'm ready to buy a restaurant. And they're like, no, you're not ready. Trust me. So... I remember working, working drive-through, working fries, picking up trash in the parking lot, working as a maintenance guy, you know, filtering fryers. I mean, it was a, it was humbling at times. Um, I'll, I'll never forget. I was working the drive-through one time, and a uh, customer come through, and they looked up at me and was like, "Aren't you Steve McKinney?" <laughs> I said, "I said yes, I am." <laughs> Why are you working at McDonald's? You know, it was like, oh. Well, I'm training to be an owner operator, <laughs> but I would get that. I would get those looks a lot. Like I could tell people, some people would come through and they'd recognize me. And I can think and they wouldn't say anything, but I could tell in their mind, they're like, man, he's really falling on hard times. You know, so here he was playing in the NFL last year. And now he's working in drive through at McDonald's. I'm like, okay, well, you know, there's a plan. There's a reason I'm here. You know, I've got a, I've got a goal in mind. So, but there was, there was plenty of days where I would, be on my way home and I'm thinking like, man, I hope, is this worth it? You know, I, I hope, I hope what I'm, I hope this is really worth it because this is a lot of work and it's exhausting and there's not really any end in sight. Um, and you know, you question it sometimes and you're just like, man, I just don't know if I can do it anymore. You know, and you have to pep, give yourself a pep talk, you know, you have to kind of complain to your wife and let her lift you up, you know? So, I mean, it was just, there was definitely some days like that, but at the end of the day, I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I fought through those desires to give up or throw in the towel. You know, I just kept kept pushing myself through it, and finally, finally get to a point where you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's it's close, and that you know, once you can see that light, man, it's just like full steam ahead. Whatever you got to do. So. so it was tough to get your first. You were rejected for your first franchise. Then it was tough to get it, mm-hmm. and then you had some goals, right? So you got your first franchise. Yeah. And then you set some goals, right? Yes. So, you know, when I was meeting with them, they asked me, you know, what, what is your, what is your ambition? You know, how many, you know, what would you like to see as far as owning stores in the future? And I said, well, I said, I'm, I'd like to own 20 in 20 years. And that was my goal. That's what I told them. Um, because that's in my mind, that's where I wanted to be. Is that hard to get there? Yeah, of course. Is it a big goal? Sure. 
But I thought, well, if I set my goal at 20 and I only end up with 15, hey, that's still good. I'll take that. So I told him, I said, I want 20 sores in 20 years. That's my goal. So I think it's been, what, eight years, eight or nine years, and I'm already at 10. So, I mean, I'm, I'm getting there. You're ahead of the game. I'm ahead of the game, man. I'm just trying to, trying to stay ahead of the, the pace. You know, I'm not even – sometimes I have to re – kind of relook at my goals and, and change them. You know, as things change, you got to change your goals. And so, you know, I think now my goal is probably more like 30 eventually. In 20 years. I think I can get there in 20. I mean, I've gotten to 10 and 8, so I think I can get to 30 in, in 20 years. Talk to me about um, something that translated from sports at A&M and, and foot, playing football in the NFL to, to running businesses. What's, what's a couple of things that you can attribute some, to, some success to? Well, I think that you know one of the things I think that definitely translates from football to McDonald's is just teamwork and just being a, being a team player. Uh, one of the things, especially as an offensive lineman, you know, you're used to working hard and not getting a lot of accolades for that. Um, and it's not much different being in McDonald's. You know, those people work very hard. Um, most customers don't appreciate it or even understand how hard they work because everybody works hard. You know, you're getting paid to do it. Oh, it's your job. But they really do. You know, these people work hard um, and don't always get a lot of appreciation for it. So one of the things I do is I work with them. You know, a lot of times I'm working side by side with them. You know, they see me putting in the work. They see that I'm not. I'm. I'm willing to roll my sleeves up and get my hands dirty. You know, I'm not just a. I'm not just an owner operator that's just going to show up and sit in the lobby and work on the computer the whole time. Even though I do that occasionally, but I also get up and go help them. You know, and I'll jump in the kitchen and I'll make burgers and I'll take orders and I'll work and drive through and do whatever you got to do. Because at the end of the day, it's your business. You know, you own it. You better respect it. If you don't. Your employees aren't going to respect it, so you know you just learn to learn to do whatever it takes and, and lead by example. You know, one thing that you learn in, in football is you can't be a fake leader. You know, players can see that a mile away. You can't be one of these guys that talks a big game but doesn't walk the walk. You know, you you got to lead by example to get the respect of your teammates. It's no different in McDonald's. If you want your employees, your managers to respect you, you got to be able to lead by example. That means being respectful. To everybody, never be degrading. Coach, coach behavior, um, not personality, because people. Some people are the way they are, so don't ever attack somebody for being the way they are. But coach, coach their behavior. Coach what they're doing wrong. Show them what they're doing wrong. Teach them the right way. Don't tell them they're slow, or you're not doing a good job. Show them what they're doing wrong and help them fix it. You know, so those are the kind of things you learn, you know, through the leadership courses and things you take in McDonald's and, and, and really in football too. Because I know for me, coaches that would coach, there's two types of coaches, right? There's the type of coach that tells you to go block this guy, and then there's another type of coach that tells you how to go block that guy. And the coach, usually the coach that just tells you to go block this guy is the same one that tells you to hit him harder, run through him, blah, blah, you know, yell at you for j- everything can be fixed by just going harder. And that's not always reality, right? Sometimes there's got to be a plan. There's got to be a technique to get that job done. So I always liked coaches that were technique coaches. Show me how to do it. Don't just tell me what to do. Show me how to do it. Tell me why. 
I want to know why to do it this way. Why is this way better? And so that was always how my mind worked, and I always gravitated towards coaches that, that coach like that because I always thought those are the best coaches. You know, anybody can be a rah-rah guy. Anybody can, you know, yell at you for not getting your block and, you know, degrade you and call you names. But good coaches correct those mistakes, show you the proper way to do it, show you where your foot and your hand should have been on that play to be successful. So, I mean, that's kind of the way I lead. You know, I don't I don't get mad when, you know, if the drive through is too slow or um, things like that. I don't get mad. I don't yell at my people. I don't, you know, come in and suck the uh, energy out of the room. You know, I want to come in there. I want to lift them up. I want them to be excited to see me because they know that anything I say to them, it's going to be coming from a good place. It's only to help them and help the business. It's never, it's never personal. So, I mean, I, I, I try to be a good leader in that way because I want my people to like me. I want them to respect me. Um, because I know if I treat them with respect, they're going to treat my customers with respect. So, I want to I want to hit you with a somewhat of a hell mary here. Uh, <laughs> okay. So I, I was listening to uh, somebody that I really respect, um, and he said uh, one of the last lines of the Star Spangled Banner. So one of the last lines of the Star Spangled Banner says, um, "Oh say, does that Star Spangled Banner still wave?" Mm-hmm. And it's a question. Does that Star Spangled Banner still wave? And the last year, NFL players started kneeling during this song. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that is that a breakdown in leadership? And are and you know how, how do you view that? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know my thoughts even from the, even from the day one when I saw that, I I didn't like it. It's not something that I would have ever done. I have way too much respect for the military and for the flag and for the star spangled banner, um, to do anything that could be even construed as disrespectful towards it or towards, uh, the military. And I understand what, what the protest is for. And I understand why some of them were kneeling and what they were, you know, they were trying to get attention towards a cause that they felt passionate about. And that's fine. You know, if you want to, if you want to bring attention towards causes, by all means, this is America. You have the right to do that. But what I didn't like is I don't like guys putting on a uniform and representing me when I don't want them to represent me, right? If you're, if you're a Houston Texan and I'm playing next, next to you and you're taking a knee, you're making me look bad. I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for a player to take his personal causes and put them on top of me. Because now that reflects poorly on me in the community because I'm going to be associated with you because I'm also a Texan. And so that's the part that I didn't appreciate the, the players that did it. I, I think it was just it's disrespectful to their teammates and to their organization. If on Tuesday, on your day off, if you want to go take knees and um, you know stand on a soapbox and yell about your causes, then by all means, go do it. They have Twitter Facebook, there's plenty of avenues to be able to spread your cause and bring awareness to it. I just didn't like that. I don't like. I didn't like that they were kneeling and and representing their teammates and their organization um, when they should have been focusing on playing football. Yeah, that's what Sundays are for. It's for football. It's not for making political statements. Yeah, it seems like they were protesting uh, social injustice, mm-hmm. and the flag mm-hmm. is for social justice, uh-huh. right? It was misguided. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, 
you know, I'm glad Colin Kaepernick got famous for it. And even though he was not a very good quarterback towards the end of his career, he's now got he's now legendary in that in his, his world, where people think that he could come back today and be a all pro. He could not, <laughs> but he got his attention that he wanted. Um, I didn't like the way the NFL handled it. I think they should have probably put their foot down quicker before it got out of control. Because um, I mean, it was pretty obvious in the beginning that there was most fans didn't appreciate it. You know, most fans didn't didn't like what they were doing, regardless of the cause they were doing it for. They didn't like how they went about it. Um, you know, and viewership hurt from it. I think viewership was down like ten percent. I mean, a lot of people just turned the NFL off. You know, so the NFL should have stepped in sooner. Um, I think they've done a better job this year. It, it, it at least has not been a major talking point as it was last year. So uh, I just I hated that they had to had to go through that. I mean, it, it, and even me being retired for you know almost ten years now, you know, it still reflected poorly on me because I had to walk around and at the same time all these people were upset at at the NFL and you know players for kneeling, and I'm a former NFL player. And so I get associated with that, and I didn't like that. You know, I didn't think that was fair for, for those guys to, to bring everybody into that cause that didn't want to be in it, didn't ask to be in it. You know, we all got kind of sucked into it. Well, I appreciate you sharing about that. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. it's not something that I, you know, go around talking about all the time, but, I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and, and I brought that up because we, you, you moved to a, the topic of leadership. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take some strong leadership to get that fixed and move forward. I think I think we'll move forward. Oh, it's yeah. going to take some leadership to move us forward. You know? I, I agree. Yeah. Um, I can tell, and you've talked about focus and goals. Focus and goals. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when we met, um, I asked you, hey, have you ever thought about diversifying? Mm-hmm. There's a reason you chose McDonald's. Um, mm-hmm one of the most successful brands in the world. Mm-hmm. Many people don't don't understand that because McDonald's doesn't tout that. Right. One of the most successful brands in the world. Yeah. Um, but you focus on that, and you're building out your franchise count. Tell me why focus is, is important. I want to learn. Well, when I was starting my business career and I was venturing off into snow cones and velocity sports performance and real estate and developing subdivisions and later even did whitetail deer breeding. I was in every, I was doing a lot of things, man. I was, I don't know if I just had attention deficit disorder or I just liked being busy, but I had a lot of things going on. You know, I had a lot of irons in the fire, as they say, and not, none of them, not all of them were successful. Some were, some were not. But it was because I couldn't focus on any one thing. So I'm, you know, I've got over here. I'm focusing on this, but then later in the day, I got to go do this, and tomorrow I'm doing this, and so you're just doing too much. And so I realized I learned from it, which is one of the probably the, the best traits that I have is I do make a lot of mistakes, but I learn from them, and I try not to repeat them. You know, I try not to be hard-headed, and I try to kind of be retrospective um, and look back and, and try to see what I did wrong and why, why I shouldn't have done this and that and, and kind of learn from it moving forward. It's really helped me uh, as, I, as I've gotten older. But when I did decide I wanted to do McDonald's, like you said, it's one of the biggest brands in the world. It's probably one of the top five um, brands and logos in the world, most recognizable. 
You know, it's up there with Coca-Cola and Mercedes-Benz and just logos that anybody around the world would recognize. So I said, they've been successful long before I got here. They'll be successful long after I get leave. So while I'm here, I'm just going to focus on doing this the best that I can. Because if I do, then I'm going to be very successful. But if I kind of halfway do it um, and I'll distract myself by trying to you know, venture out into some little side projects and things like that, and I take my eye off the prize, and then I'm going to eventually fail or I'm never going to reach the level of success that I want. So I, I, that's why I made the, made the conscious decision that this is just what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell stuff that I didn't have to sell. I could have held on to commercial real estate and done all that. That's a very passive investment that I could hire managers to do for me. But it's still, it's still a distraction, you know, and it still requires my time here and there. I decided I'm going to sell it. I'm just going to get out of it completely. Just, just do McDonald's. I sold my ranch. I sold all my deer. Um, it, was a, it was definitely a turning point in my life. I sold my house. I moved, you know, out to Montgomery, closer to where our first McDonald's was located. So, I mean, basically I went all in, man. I pushed all my chips in the middle and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to live or die. I got this much money left in my life and I'm going to live or die by it. I'm putting it all in the, in the middle. And that's, was that the right decision? Yeah, it, it was because that level of uh, determination and dedication has led me from buying one restaurant to now 10 in eight years that are all successful. You know, I don't have restaurants that are losing money and bringing me down. They're all successful because I built them and I built them slow and I did it the right way. I hired good people. I hired good supervisors. I built relationships with my managers and my people. Um, tried to create a family atmosphere and a sense of appreciation. So I learned that every, uh, every manager wants to be appreciated almost more than they want to raise. So I, I, try to, I try to make sure that every one of my people know that I appreciate them and, and are there for them no matter what. If anything comes up, anything happens... You call me, and I'll I'll figure out a way to make it right and help you. So, when when people know that, they work harder, you know, and they're they they want they want success as much as you want success. So, I've just been I've just been doing that for eight years, man. I haven't not uh, I'm not gonna lie and say that there hadn't been moments of frustration where I thought maybe I maybe I should go do something else, uh, but I've never let those thoughts stay in my head very long. And usually my wife's the one to slap me around and get, knock some sense out of me. Like, no, you're not getting out of McDonald's. It's You're doing great. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's like every three years I have that, that thought. But, you know, I'm I'm solid. I'm solid with McDonald's. I love doing it. And, you know, I, ante- I anticipate doing it for a long time. Thank God for good wives. They're, they're, I know, man. That's, that's their thing, keeping these boneheads. <laughs> I mean, it's true, man. I'll tell you what, without my wife and... Um, yeah, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. It probably wouldn't even be McDonald's. There's no telling. I want to ask you about some tactical things. Um, so, like habits or routines that you that you have in your life uh, from sports and business that anyone could apply that would mm-hmm. help them. So that I could apply that you know anybody on the, on the streets could apply. What yeah. do you do tactically on a daily basis? Well, I, you know. When I was going through the McDonald's training, there was, you know, there was some books that we had to read and some classes that we went to. And one of them was the, um, the seven habits of highly successful people. And, you know, I read that book and, you know, went to the class about it. And 
And it really kind of, uh, I don't know, it just kind of spoke to me. It just made a lot of sense. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it. And not that Stephen Covey is this great example of a human being or anything like that, but his words that he put in that book are very, very uh, good. I mean, they work. And so I've, I've really tried to apply a lot of those, uh, those habits to my life. And it's helped me because there was, there was, there's times when you can get to working too hard. You know, and you're working too much and you're not building those relationships and you're not taking care of yourself. And you can't be successful just doing that. You can't just work. You got to work hard, but you got to you got to go out, you know, with your wife and you got to go spend time with your friends and go to a football game and, and exercise and do those other things because you got to build yourself church. You know, you got to build yourself physically, spiritually, uh, emotionally. You have to continue to to develop because uh, working all the time is no fun. I, and I did that for a while. I did that. You know, when I first opened my first McDonald's, I think I didn't take a day off for like three months. I was working seven days a week, probably 12 hours a day, just killing myself. And it got, it got, I got to that point where I was like, man, this, this is not fun. You know, I don't, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I'm working too much. I'm not doing anything. I hadn't seen my kids. And, um, and I, I made a conscious decision at that point. I'm like, you know, I started thinking back to the, to the book, you know, sharpen your saw. I'm not sharpening my saw. I'm not even going to the gym. I'm not taking a day off. I'm not playing catch with my kid. And so I, I made the decision. I'm like, look, I'm done. Five days, five days is all I'm getting. Two days a week, I'm going to spend with my family. Um, I started working out in the morning on my way to work. So I'd go to the gym. I'd go work, put my, you know, 10 hours in. You know, two, my two days off or two days off. Don't call me unless it's an emergency. I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to see my kid's game, whatever. And so that, you know, applying those, those things to my life, it really, really has helped. And, um, probably one of the more important ones too, is, is beginning with the end in mind, because that kind of goes back to setting goals. Like I did when I was in seventh grade and I made the decision that I was going to play at A&M. So I, I, that's the end. Now I'm going to begin with that in mind. How do I get there? And so I've, I've really tried to apply that, um, in my business life, but also in my personal life, you know, because I want, I want to set goals in personal and business. And if you don't have a plan to achieve those goals, then it's not a goal. It's just a dream because anybody can just say, Hey, I want to do this. You know, I want to be president. Okay. Well, what's your plan? How are you going to get there? What are you going to do between now and then to make that dream come a reality? And so I've always kind of wrote down my goals. I've shared them with people um, because if you don't verbalize them, I don't think they, I don't think it works. I think you have to write them down. You got to put them there, put them there on the mirror and you got to look at them every day. You got to rem- constantly remind yourself where you're trying to get to. So you're looking at your goals every day. Yeah. Well, they're in my head now. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what my goals are, right? 30 restaurants. That's my goal. Um, but my plan to get there, I look at that every day because that's, that's, what will get me to 30 restaurants is taking care of the little things now, take, paying attention to the details, taking care of your people, developing your people, bringing on more people. So those are the type of behaviors that I, that I concentrate on now as part of the plan to get to where I want to be, you know, being smart with your money. Awesome. Yeah. Very good. You've got a couple mantras that you uh, shared with me. One of them is I have no interest in being average. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, now, I do look at that one every day. 
I have that one up. I put that on a post-it note, I don't know, a couple years ago or so, and stuck it on my wall right in front of my computer where I have to look at it every day. I forget why I wrote that. Uh, something was happening at the time, and I just remember thinking, like, I don't have any interest in being average. I want to be great. Like, if I'm going to be a McDonald's owner-operator, I don't want to just be an average operator. I want to be great. I want to be proud of my restaurants, you know? I don't want to... I don't want to ever be embarrassed when I walk into one of my restaurants. So that, I think that's that's kind of why I wrote that down. It's just kind of remind your, remind me, like, don't be average. Anybody can be average. It's easy. It's crowded. It's very crowded. Be great. So you also have this this saying. Uh, I think it's from Jim Collins. Uh, good is the great of enemy, or good is the enemy of great. Yes, is that, is that right? That is true. Yeah, and, and that kind of goes back to that same thing. You know. As soon as you get satisfied with being good enough, you're going backwards. There's only one way, only one place to go from there. Once in your mind you've accepted that that's good enough, it's only going to get worse from there. You can't ever be satisfied. And I know that kind of sounds bad, but as a football player, I had that mentality. I could never be satisfied because I never played a perfect game. I mean, there was times where I felt pretty good and felt okay with how I played, but I was never satisfied. I always knew it could be better. And that's kind of how you have to run your business, man. It's never good enough. It really isn't. You know, even even when it's good, it's not good enough because it can be better. I want everything to be perfect. Now, I'm never going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean I can't work to be perfect. And so that's kind of the mentality I try to have is just, just work to be perfect. And, you know, don't beat yourself up if you don't get there. But you beat yourself up if you're not trying to be perfect. You know, that's kind of the mentality I try to have. I, I, you know, try to teach that to my employees and kids and everybody else that'll listen. You know, I think that's the kind of mentality you have to have to be to have any real true, great success as far as in business or even in sports. Um, If you don't have that mentality, you're probably not going to go very far. Even even super talented people. If you're if you're okay with uh, with good enough, then you'll you'll never make it. You won't be great. There's no way. Let, let me ask you about challenges. You've been through a lot of challenges, uh, mm-hmm. being in the NFL, being a business owner. When you get hit with a challenge, what? How do you think about that? Well, I don't. Uh, I've always had a pretty strong mindset, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna run from a challenge. You know, I feel like if if I put my mind to something, you know, I can work through it. Because believing that you can overcome something is really half the battle. You know, if if you ever went into a game not believing 100 percent that you could win, you've already lost. Um, I don't know who said it originally probably somebody really famous, but I remember Howard Mudd used to always say, and this was this quote that really stuck in my head, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Sounds like Henry Ford. That's who it was. It was Henry Ford, yeah. But I didn't know know Henry Ford had said that at the time, but Howard Mudd used to always say that to us, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And that really kind of got to me because, I mean, I was only a 22-year-old kid or something at the time, but I'm thinking like, yeah, he's right. You know, if you if you don't believe you can do it, there's no way you're going to do it. And so, as a football player, you go into every game, no matter who you're playing, 
thinking you're going to win the game. I never once walked out onto a field conceding a loss, ever. 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 Not once. Not even in high school. Maybe one time. When I was at Centerville, we were playing, we were like 0 and 8 or something, and we were playing Groveton, who had Rodney Thomas, who played at AM and in the NFL as the running back. And he was, he was rushing for about 600 yards a game. I, I, I knew we were going to lose that game. <laughs> they were really good. But no other game since then in my college or NFL career did I ever step on that field thinking we were going to lose. So, I mean, that's just that's the mindset every player's got to have because the second you, second you don't think you can win, you can't. Let me ask you about serving, man. And you, you're a humble guy. Um, I ask you about, you know, why you give back and, and, you know, why you help the community. You do a lot of stuff for law enforcement mm-hmm. and, and vets. And uh, I've seen pictures of you teaching elementary classes. Mm-hmm. Tell, me, <laughs> tell me about that. Why, well, let me ask you this. Why do you, why do you serve and give back? Well, I mean, I think it's the right thing to do. You know, my, I grew up as the son of a doctor, a small-town doctor, um, state representative. So I was always kind of, uh, I was raised in, a, in an environment that was expected to kind of give back to your community and, and serve others. I think that's kind of why I, McDonald's spoke to me so much, is because I was it felt good to serve people. And I try to do as much as I can to help and give back. You know, I want to be a part of the communities. The communities that we serve, we're a part of. You know, and I want to give back to those same communities, whether that's financially or, or through, um, you know, donations of my own time. And so we do, you know, one of the things that I started is we, every Tuesday night, we we go to the Galveston Ronald McDonald House, and we feed, we feed all the families there. Um, and it's very special because... You know, a lot of people don't know what the Ronald McDonald House is. And it's basically a place where people can stay when their children or close family member are sick and have to be in the hospital. You know, it provides families a place to stay for free. Provides them food and shelter um, at no cost to them. Uh, and you go there and, and it, gives the, it gives the families a chance to be able to kind of take their children sometimes out of the hospital. Because a lot of these families are... You know, they might live in El Paso and they need to be getting treatment here in Houston or in, or in Galveston. And, you know, they don't want to be driving back and forth each week for cancer treatments, things like that for their children. And so they'll stay at the Ronald McDonald House and we'll go down there every Tuesday, first of the month and, and feed the families. We'll cook it. You know, we don't just go. We don't bring them McDonald's. You know, we'll cook them home, home cooked food and uh, enchiladas or spaghetti or steaks, you know, dessert, everything, you know, we'll go down there and we'll serve it to them. And we've been doing that in my organization for at least the last couple of years, um, since my organization has gotten large enough to be able to, to do stuff like that. And it, it, I'll tell you, man, that is probably one of the, um, that's one of the most awesome things that I do. And I'm a part of, I and mean, I love, I love giving back to that, to that house and to those people. And, um, you know, some of the sweetest little kids you can imagine just going through the worst, possible times in their life and it's just hard hard to see sometimes but sometimes you can bring a smile to their face and that you know it makes it worthwhile um and then as far as the the military you know i I always give free meals to my veterans on on holidays and things like that because i i've always had a great respect for the military my my grandfathers both served in the military my father-in-law was in the military um so 
I come from a family that that served and you know I never had the opportunity to serve and my my life took me in a different direction but uh, I've always had a great respect for for service members in in the military and wanted to you know any chance I have to hire one or or bring one onto my team I always do because I know that they're going to be disciplined they're going to be hard workers and they're going to be respectful and they're going to they're going to appreciate um, a hard day's work those are valuable skills very valuable skills you know I mean I, as an offensive lineman, I always kind of felt I could relate to service military people because we were we were always overworked and underappreciated as an offensive line. You know, that was kind of our motto, overworked, underappreciated. That's your military. That's your police officers, your firemen, right? These people work so hard. They give so much back to our community, and yet they go on unappreciated way too often, you know? And that's... That's why I always felt kind of a kinship towards, uh, you know, first responder types and, and military. So I always try to try to do what I can. You know, I'm only one mer- one person. I can only do so much, but I, I I never I never pass up the opportunity to help out. I see in a lot of pictures teaching uh, classrooms, and you'll have like thirty or forty kids mm-hmm. listening to you. Mm-hmm. Elementary age kids, right? Give me like a one minute synopsis of what you're telling them. <laughs> Usually I'm trying to tell them that, you know, something about McDonald's food is not going to kill you. And, it's, you know, it's, it is real beef and, you know, our chicken nuggets are white meat or not. It's not pink slime, you know. So I'm usually defending some Internet rumor that, you know, that's come up over the last five years. But um, that's, you know, that's that's a lot of times what I do is I'll go talk to kids at schools. And, you know, used to it always used to be about football. Right, I'd go and I'd speak to kids or read to a class, and they'd want to ask about football and, you know, what's it like to play with Peyton Manning or, you know, have you ever pancaked a guy? You know, just what kind of car do you drive? You know, just those kind of questions that kids like to ask. And uh, but now it's you know I go and I talk about McDonald's, you know, and then every once in a while people, every once in a while somebody will want to ask a football question. But yeah, I think that. Uh, that part of my life has, has been over long enough that most of these kids were, weren't even born when I was playing. So, Gotcha. <laughs> I've made peace with that. You know, I don't, I'm not one that walks around looking, looking to sign autographs, I can promise you. I've got a couple more uh, questions to wrap up. One, you shared with me that you're pretty hard on yourself to improve. Yes. And, and, but you also talked about a fine line mm-hmm. between pushing yourself too hard and giving yourself some slack. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? You know, when I was a um, freshman, no, sophomore at A&M, Mike Sherman was my old line coach. I was very hard on myself because he was hard on us. You know, he, he expected us to be perfect. Um, and, you know, you felt bad when you let him down when you weren't perfect. And, you know, I, I beat myself up a lot about it, you know. Um, a lot of sleepless nights because of, you know, two or three bad plays in a game of 80 plays. And you'll mess up two or three of them, and yet I'm sitting over here at 22, 21 years old losing sleep over it. And then the next year I had a new O-line coach came in. His name was Steve Marshall, and he really taught me how to let, let stuff go. You know, he made me understand that just try to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. And if you make a mistake, move on to the next play. Don't let one play, one bad play become two bad plays. And so he really, he really taught me that because there, I, there was plenty of times before where I would let one bad play become two bad plays. 
I'd have a bad play and I'm beating myself up and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And I get up to the next play and, you know, screw up again. And learning to be able to let stuff go, accept that you weren't perfect, but that you can keep trying to be perfect on the next play. Didn't mean you didn't mean you failed just because you failed on that one play. And that really helped me mentally. I mean, that helped me probably carry me throughout my whole career because I can tell you mentally it's very stressful to play under the pressure of feeling like you have to be perfect and if you're not you failed because that's not true but playing under the pressure of you know just try to be perfect but if you don't if you're not we'll get you know we'll keep working at it you know I'm not going to cut you or you know I'm not going to take your starting job because you mess up a couple plays so once I once I once I got over that fear and and learned how to put plays behind me and move on, man. It, I was a much better player and I was much more peaceful and a happy person on top of that. So, I mean, that's one of the things I try to make, make sure I talk to kids about, and, you know, especially young athletes. It's like, you know, do your best, try to be perfect on every play, but don't, don't let one bad play become two bad plays. You know, when the play's over, move on to the next play. Don't even think about it. Great. Um, Books or resources. Actually, let me back up for a second. In the very beginning of the interview, uh, you mentioned that that you were meant to be at the Colts, mm-hmm. and and you mentioned God. Mm-hmm. And so, how how important is your spiritual life for, to your success? And I mean, do you, do you attribute success or your success to God? And how how do you view that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was I was raised in the church. Um, my whole life. I was baptized when I was 13. Um, you know, I've, I've gone to church my whole life. You know, it's just been part of, part of who I am. Um, you know, I've raised my, raised my children to be Christian. Um, so I mean, we're, we're proud Christians. Um, we go to church every Sunday. Uh, I definitely give all the glory to God and everything that I've been able to accomplish. Um, you know, without him, I would be nothing. And, you know, that can't, that can't be said enough. And I don't try to be one of those athletes that, you know, thanks God after every, every win and do all that. That was never my style. Um, I was always very, very private, you know, from that aspect. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, you certainly have to carry yourself a certain way. You know, I don't want to ever be a hypocrite. So I don't, I can't stand hypocrites. I don't like guys that walk around carrying a Bible telling you how Christian they are, but then you see them um, doing things that aren't reflective of that uh, Christian behavior. So I don't I was never, I never wanted to be that guy, you know, so I just try to be who I am. You know, I try to be honest and I try to try to not ever be a hypocrite. I don't want to be somebody I'm not, um, you know, so I try to live my life, you know, a certain way. And that's just by doing the right thing, you know, living your life the way God wants you to live it. Uh, just make the right decisions in life. When nobody's watching, do the right thing. That's, it's pretty simple. It's hard, sometimes hard to do, but this, it's the way you'll have more successful life if you can just learn that one thing. Just do the right thing. No matter where you are, who's watching, and you will go far. Whether it's in sports, in business, in life, in marriage, if you make that conscious decision to always do the right thing, you'll you'll get there and you'll be successful. Um, 
other books or resources that you'd recommend to entrepreneurs, leaders, uh, people who are who want to be successful? Well, um, you know, definitely the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. You know, I think that one that one's had a big impact on me and my success. And you know, I think in in business and in life that can help. Um, another one that I've read is called Who Moved My Cheese, and it's kind of a salesman type book, but it's also a, it's also a good book. I would recommend reading. It's a quick read too. Okay, good. I want to say thanks. Uh, you're you're our Legacy Award, one of our two Legacy Award recipients this year. Awesome. And I want to I want to say thanks for serving, setting an example, mm-hmm. being out front, leading by example, and doing something important and serving, being a servant, being a servant leader. I want to say thanks from Vell, our board of directors, our ambassadors, and and our organization as a whole. I know the community appreciates the type of leader you are. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Terry. That's very nice. And thank you for your time today. I know you're busy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always make time for you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's B-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.